You guys ready? I'm ready. He started it. We started it. Started. All oh, right, great. Well, here we are. It's Thursday afternoon. We are at the Gallagher's house. Uh, I've got a cup of coffee and a piece of chocolate cake. And I'm with Johnny, our resident theologian. Hello. Uh, Laura. Hello. And Owen. Hello. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> sound like you want to be here. <laughs> yeah. I just wondered how many times there's a first episode of a podcast recorded that never um, has a second one attached to it. Yeah. Will this be one of those? Uh, no, definitely not. Whether you're here next time we record it <laughs> depends <laughs> on your answers to the questions. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Of course you'll be here. Um, so as we promised, uh, we want to um, just capture some thoughts, answer some questions, throw a few ideas around and give you a bit of an insight into some of the bigger picture thinking of Yobble. Um, we've come to the end of our first Yobble teaching series, which was It Is Written, masterfully crafted by Owen and Laura and brilliantly delivered, I would say. It was, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, just for anyone who might be wondering what Yobble is, Rich. Oh yeah, good point. Just in case. Well done. What is it, Laura? <laughs> Yobble stands for uh, Year of Biblical Literacy. Very good. There we go. And why, what, is, what is a year of biblical literacy all about? Laura? Well, you tell us. <laughs> so, it's, yeah. so, it's a year, so this is our year-long project to teach the Bible, get to grips with the Bible as a community, to really understand it, the story, the themes, how to, un, how to read it, how to apply it to our lives. Um, and we've done the first series, which looked at what the Bible actually is. And I guess we thought it would be good to get Owen and Laura just to recap real quick on the key messages from that series. What was it that... Um, they were hoping we'd grasp what are some of the things you would want us to not lose sight of as we go into future teaching series and keep reading through the Bible together. So, Laura, do you want to kick off? Um, yeah, although I wonder whether you should, Owen, just because you did the first few well, talks. Chip in. The first week was, we're asking the question, uh, basic question, what is it? Uh, concluding, amongst other things, that it's an uh, ancient text that it's confusing at times. Um, it's a sort of mini library of um, lots of texts um, written across uh, time. And yeah, confusion is okay will be a take home from the first week. What was the second week? Authority. Yeah. Uh, how does it have authority in our lives? What does it mean for it to be uh, an authoritative text? What did we look at then? Uh, one idea was talking about um, the difference between a dictatorship and, um, as in a kind of uh, a dictatorship and a relationship. So a dictatorship being this authority that's imposed out of the blue in a sort of ugly, um, brutal, um, obey this or else um, sort of way versus the beautiful, true, winsome sort of authority that is wrought in God's saving action. And so we saw how uh, the scriptures first tell the story of what God has done. And off the back of that, there is this um, big, costly, um, sacrificial invitation into a different way of life. Uh, and that's where the sort of the rules come in, as it were, or the invitations is a better word for them um, and we were thinking as well about how uh, the 
Bible is both um, a book written by uh, humans, so you get moments of seeing, for example, in the New Testament, uh, Paul's personality come through and other moments where um, this is uh, a recorded uh, story from um, the people in it experiencing God's action, but then also how it's inspired by God um, how he, by his spirit, is the one behind um, this gift to us, which tells us the story of God's involvement um, in human history. Third week was... Looking at the making of the Bible, um, tracing back from manuscripts and Dead Sea Scrolls and Septuagints and um, all things like that, through to um, the... Greek New Testaments, the or the the what's it called, Johnny? Which one? Biblia Hebraica. Yes, that one. Um, <laughs> uh, these where they compile all of the sort of um, scrolls and manuscripts and papyri. Is that the plural of papyrus? It is now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sounds right. Um, compile all this together into you know version um, the the best best compilation, um, as it were, of the Hebrew text, of the Greek text, and then how committees then use those to um, generate our English translations. Get translations committees like the um, NIV committee, who onto their third third attempt now with the 2011 um, text, as they take into account um, the scholarship that keeps on developing and so just lifting the lid on all of that process all the stuff the many years lives um, that go into producing our English Bibles that we otherwise take for granted so hopefully that helped us uh, stand in awe a little bit more of this this thing and then we rounded up the whole it is written series by kind of asking the question okay we take all of that that we've said about uh, how it has authority in our lives, how it's compiled, its origins, blah, blah, blah. Um, what does it actually mean and how do we understand it? Appreciating that, um, as Owen said earlier, there's several moments perhaps when we're reading the scriptures that we kind of wonder, um, what on earth does this mean and how does it apply for us today? And the first thing we wanted to say that uh, we should uh, remember when we're reading scripture is that it's about God. Uh, before it's about us and maybe our ideas, our interpretation, how we might apply it to our lives, etc. It's about him. It's his story. It shows us what he's like, that he is good, that he is faithful, that he is holy, that he is loving, etc. Um, so it shows us what God is like. And the story um, is a unified story. So yes, it's a, a whole compilation of different texts, this kind of mini library, um, as we've been calling it. But actually, it's this one story which points to Jesus Christ, and therefore it is about God before it's about anything else. So we study our Bibles to worship our God and to be changed by him. And then we kind of said, okay, if it's about God, what about those moments when we don't really understand how a passage is particularly about God or it's hard to see uh, God in the particular moment that we're reading, maybe those tricky bits in Deuteronomy and Leviticus um, especially, and kind of set out a couple of uh, little patterns for how we might go about understanding and interpreting scripture. The first being to read it um, from the front to the back, read it forwards, uh, read it normally as you would um, any other book you read, um, where you put it in context for the whole plot, you don't just start at page 50 and... Um, 
and you know get completely confused you have to go back and read the first page and understand it so every moment that we're reading in scripture we need to kind of situate in light of the rest of scripture um, in light of the context before it um, seeing what has happened to God's people the journey they're on um, and uh, the surrounding context as well at the time so firstly we read the bible uh, from front to back we read it forwards and then secondly we read it from back to front we read it backwards uh, a slightly more weird thing to do perhaps but if this is a whole um a whole book with a unified um if even sorry this is a unified story uh, pointing to jesus then we need to see every moment in light of uh, the full story of god um, and that means looking through the lens of Jesus Christ. So reading the Old Testament uh, with kind of our Jesus lens. He's our focal lens, essentially, for understanding the Old Testament. Um, so we bring the New Testament to the Old Testament. Same God, uh, same Lord of Scripture. And we bring Jesus into what we see in the Old Testament. And then as we do this, um, by God's Spirit and His grace, we will find that we're changed because God speaks and we we see what he's like. So there we are. Those were some of the sort of preliminary questions as we get going on this year to tackle. I thought it was great. Did you enjoy it, Johnny? Yeah, it was good. It was good. You were telling me that particularly the last talk, something happened for you beyond just head knowledge. It was like a moment for you personally in terms of your journey of faith. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, it was... To me, it showed... Our theology is formative, not affirmative. So Jesus is the Ooh, affirmative. I like that. It's for, Say that again. Theology is formative, it's not affirmative. Yeah. So our foundation is Jesus, not the theology yeah. that leads to him. Which for someone who's about to become a vicar. Yeah, it was helpful. It was helpful, yeah, that's good. Yeah. Says the vicar who never went to theological college. Okay, oh, don't tell anyone that. Okay, um, so I thought it was great. And uh, we want you to, I guess... Um, those of you listening to hold on to all of that as we go forward because that's actually yeah. why we started with that series in the first place a couple of questions specifically came up uh, from some of you um, about the series in particular and actually there were things that perhaps if we'd had more time we would have addressed one was on what the apocrypha is and mm-hmm. owen is teed up in fact he's got one right open in front of me so, uh, what, what is the apocrypha why don't we read it what's the problem with it so the apocrypha um, I've got in my hand here um, a Bible that Worcester Diocese presented to me oh dear. Um, <laughs> upon my ordination. <laughs> and if you were just, you know, taking an innocent um, browse through, looking for, I don't know, the Psalms or something, somewhere in the middle, you might find suddenly some more exotic sounding books like what have we got here? Sirach, um, Tobit, Maccabees. Um, Bell and the Dragon. That sounds good, that one. Um, <laughs> no, you sure that's not one of Karis's <laughs> books? And this is what, you know, um, in all likelihood, if you have grown up in the church in this country, in a good Protestant uh, land, you um, will find these names exotic. You not, haven't been taught about them in Sunday school. These are uh, so-called apocryphal books. I think in um, yeah, Catholic circles, they would... Uh, it's not a, quite an identical list, but they talk about the deuterocanonical, as in second canon um, books. It, it's had a nod from Johnny in the That's corner. Good. It That's must good. be okay. Um, uh, so where do these come from? Basically, they um, were written later than um, this sort of emerged 
later, still um, pre-Jesus, um, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, but sort of the between, if you've got you're like in safe hands, folks. The you're Old Testament hands. and then the New Testament. This stuff emerged in between those, and so at the time of Jesus, you've got this remarkable consensus between all these groups that are, you know, fighting about um, all sorts of interpretations of of what it was to be um, Jewish, and so you've got the Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, Zealots. Um, they fight about all sorts of things. The thing they don't fight about is what they consider to be the scriptures. Um, uh, which equates to our Old Testament. Now, um, then along the way, uh, the the church. Um, so these these writings exist. They're there, but they at the time of Jesus. Jesus talks about the law, the prophets, and the writings. He doesn't then talk about and and the other ones. Um, but then throughout the church uh, history, there's been this sort of dubious relationship with these other writings that are Jewish writings. Um, uh, certainly give a window on the, the world between the Testaments um, and some of the thoughts going on there. But um, are they um, scripture? Uh, are they useful? Um, they're certainly beautiful in places. Um, there's a, something called the Song of the Three that Church of England picks up in its um, liturgy from time to time. There's probably probably others as well, but that's the only one that I've noticed so far. Uh, what are they? Um, Reformation time, um, you know, Luther, um, all the people reacting against uh, some of the abuses uh, in the Catholic Church at the time uh, were very clear. Um, no, we're going back to drawing the lines very clearly around um, the Masoretic text tradition, which we looked at in week three um, on those teachings. If that, anyway, basically the the. What the Jews say is the Jewish scriptures, this is our Old Testament, and not some of these more ambiguously placed things. In reaction to that, um, there's the Council of Trent, 15th century, something like that, that, that finally gives a firm, from the Roman Catholic point of view, a firm, no, these are scriptural, even though this sort of deuterocanonical status is, is given to them. So from a Protestant point of view, you've got these books that we think are uh, informative, useful to a certain extent, instructive to a certain extent, but we don't use them to build doctrine off. Um, so part of the, the background, I think, to this, this polemical debate in the 15th century around the Reformation was um, purgatory and um, some of the, the sort of um, more dubious doctrinal constructions uh, that were actually pegged to some of the apocryphal texts. And so that's quite interesting as to um, why uh, different sides drew the lines in different places. Um, yeah, does that go some way to answering questions of... It does. I learned the apocrypha I... or why not the apocrypha? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that. That's amazing. <laughs> You're so, like, well-read. It's brilliant. Wikipedia, isn't it? <laughs> 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 yeah, right. He's grinning. And on a related note then, and this is a conversation for all of you, um, <clears throat> I guess, there was a conversation around who decided what then was in the canon of Scripture, the, the, the kind of level one that we all agree on, the Old Testament, the New Testament. What, why is it? Why did some bits not get in and others? Uh, who decided? How, how did we know they were right? But, which I know at one point, Owen, you thought could even have been a whole talk in this series we've just done. Mm -hmm. So 
But um, Johnny, what do you know about this? <laughs> Come on, get Wikipedia open. Tell us. Um, to be slightly controversial, but hopefully helpful. So unlike you. I know, imagine. <laughs> we kind of don't know if they were right, but we trust God that he had a hand in it. So there was a load of dudes. I can't remember dates or anything like going. Just dudes? Just dudes. No yeah. ladies. No ladies decided right. this because that's not a good thing. You'd have been in it, Laura, if, <laughs> if it was now. Yeah. For the first two, two, three hundred years of the church, right up until um, that guy, the emperor. Constantine. Him. Oh, I've got something right. Yes. <laughs> sort of fixed the church up a little bit. And even he got them to argue about it. They just discussed, argued, debated. And it was all based on their personal theology and what they brought to the text as well. So what they wanted to see in there. So there's little bits and bobs that if we look back now, we might debate whether they should have been in there, but they don't really matter. They generally got it right, is my perspective on it. So things like Obadiah probably shouldn't be in there because it's probably an intertestamental, one of the apocryphal um, books, a copy of Jeremiah. But it's still helpful because it doesn't change anything. Yeah. That's As opinion. I understand it, you had a council, an early one of the early councils, fourth century, third century, something yeah. like that, that is debating other stuff and takes the yeah. opportunity to clarify. In the context of the debate, people are appealing to all sorts of things, and they take the opportunity to be like, no, no, hang on, this is what we mean by the New Testament, and almost a hundred percent consensus on it. Yeah, 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 yeah. That is what it is. Um, so they didn't meet to discuss that, but they discussed that in, in a meeting. I yeah, by the by. Yeah, like hand in hand with discussions around the nature of God. So, for example, deciding around, you know, about the uh, whether the Son was uh, equal and co-eternal with the Father and then the Spirit. And you have all of these councils meeting to discuss theology about the very nature of God. And through this, consulting uh, the the texts which become scripture and were scripture um, and uh, yeah using them and then uh, I guess through that process just um, trusting that the, the you know the early church um, who were using these letters from Paul and other texts were all confirming the doctrine about God and life as a Christian that uh, fitted together with this this whole story um, and if you look at um, is it Colossians somewhere where he says get read this letter out from yeah. re- read the one that I sent to the Thessalonians or make sure they read I can't remember quite what exactly it says but you get a picture of how these um, New Testament letters um, spread around the early church and oh we've got one from Paul and they copied that out and send it off to um, the church up the road that they would be able to hear what Paul had to say mm. to them and there was this sense um, of uh, that there were certain people who had authority, principally the apostles. Um, these were the, the eyewitnesses, the guys who'd walked and talked, yeah. been formed by uh, Jesus in such a way that they were the ones in position to speak correctively, instructively to this fledgling Jewish sect that then becomes the church. Good. So it's a bit like when I tell all my friends they need to listen to your talks. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly. That's exactly. exactly. It. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Uh, what's fascinating on that though? Um, so there's there are you know thanks to Dan Brown there is a sort of popular awareness of some of the other stuff that didn't get in and what, so like the Da Vinci Code was that yeah, was that apocryphal? That's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not in the same way we meant earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, but the, so there's this popular awareness that the, the, the and the picture that that people sort of live with is that there was perhaps at some point early on in church history there was a powerful group of elite theologians who um, excluded all the stuff that they didn't like and um, said no that's we're only going to choose these Jesus stories and these writings from the early church because these are the ones that agree with our particular our view that that Jesus is. Uh, the Son of God, and they construct this and protect and defend this elaborate sort of theological story, as it were. When you look into some of the alternative text, the stuff that was discarded and said, no, that's, this is not the authoritative voice of the church, because there are rival Jesus stories out there that we, that we have bits and pieces of. Uh, one of them is the Gospel of Thomas, it often gets a, a shout out, yeah, but what about the Gospel of Thomas? Well, you read the Gospel of Thomas, and it's utterly bizarre. And you have Jesus saying things like, yeah. um, uh, only if a woman becomes a man uh, can she uh, come into the kingdom of God, something like that. And it's, and it's laughable uh, that, you know, there's the, the, some of the stuff that is, it's just so different. It's, yeah. it's obviously not of the same, it was self-selecting, the, the New Testament canon. There's also a sense of scripture is only valid within community and like a consistent community. So anything that forces a group to sort of split or go out, which is what happened with a lot of these, it's like the Gnostics split off and decided they were elite and better than the rest. Anything that forces that to happen, you've got to be a little bit wary of. Mm. So it's suggested that it's not this driven by the spirit because there's no community, there's no cohesive mm. church there, which I think is a lot, that's what happened. So a lot of them decided, you know what, if you're not creating community and creating the body of Christ and continuing in that, then it can't be of God. Mm, that's helpful. I like it. Good stuff. Okay, so alongside this teaching series, we've obviously been doing uh, or we got into our yobble reading plan. We may have had a few uh, wobbles in our yobbling, to quote Laura, but... Uh, I don't think that was me, actually. Wasn't it you? No, Who said that? Oh, no, that was Paul Barson. I was talking about yobolitis. No, you've got yobolitis. Yeah. That's right. How is it, guys? Yobolitis, has <laughs> yeah. it resolved yet? So it this was... was it was Paul Barton. No, it was Paul Barton. His yobbling and his wobbling. But yobolitis, what's that? Well... And what's the cure? The, <laughs> um, it's just the, to make moments of, like, you know, to make a kind of moment when we're very precious about how our interpretation and how we read scripture and, uh, and get quite, um, yeah, precious in our household when that happens. I have been calling it yobolitis just to lighten the mood. And the cure is to remember, as I said earlier, that scripture is about God. So I, I maybe, I think that's great. I think I had a bit of yobolitis recently because I asked Johnny to look at all the material that I'm <laughs> doing in the next teaching series. And then he told me I was wrong in a few places. And I was like, <laughs> I can't be wrong. I spent hours on this. You were. I was wrong. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> On some things. On other things, I just think you're, I think you're wrong. Anyway, let's, let's have a fight later. <laughs> so um, anyway, back to track. Back on track. We, 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 um, we've been encouraging people, facilitating people to read through the Bible in a year. We're using the app, some of us. We've got the piece of paper, some of us. Just to remind you, if you miss a few days, don't stress. Just try and get back on track. I think the key is to watch the videos that are coming up which everyone says uh, agrees that they're brilliant. Um, we, we discovered that there's a, an illicit Facebook group, some of you out there, 
who uh, have got your own little groups discussing this, which um, Johnny's, I think, going to kind of hack into. Hack into, yeah. <laughs> He's got some guy in the FBI who's going to help him. And um, But joking aside, uh, we know some of the questions that are coming up uh, as you read through are, are really helpful questions to think about. Uh, we haven't got time to do all of them, but um, we thought it might be quite interesting just to take one from Genesis, one from Exodus, and one from Leviticus, which is where we are at the moment. So, um, Johnny... Yeah. Can you tell us about the genealogies that appear in Genesis? These long lists of people. Why are What's they there? With the genealogies. Like seriously, can we? Could they not have cut that out? That would have saved us at least five minutes each day for the last few weeks. <laughs> if we get ourselves into the heads of the Israelites and Israel as a nation and all of that, the idea of genealogies—they're not there to just give you a factual account of history or the idea that oh, I can just pass my, my lineage right the way down to Adam or any of that, is to show God's continuous work and presence throughout history, throughout mm. Israel. So they weren't too worried about literal fact in those days, but it was quite an odd time in history actually in the minute post, post what's the thing that happened 200 years ago? Enlightenment. The Enlightenment happened. <laughs> Which made everything very much black and white, literal, and all of that. Actually, if you go like previously, that wasn't the case. So for Israel, they didn't think in that way. So what they were more interested in was why, not what. So the genealogies were there to show that God had a continuous presence and he had a story to tell through Israel. They were his vehicle for grace. Yeah, that's And that's good. the idea of it. It's not there to show that... It's not even there to show you, this is a bit controversial, but it, it works. <laughs> Jesus didn't necessarily come from the line of David, but it is. Whoa, but, whoa, but whoa. Easy. We've got Christmas carols coming up. They say that. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> yeah. But, okay. But what it does we show might have to come back is. To I'm going to say, hold on a second, honey. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I think, John, steady on, Wait, Johnny. You're fired. Let me go. Yeah. Let me see <laughs> but because they didn't care in that sense, but what they did care about was showing that someone's authority and like where he came from so for them even though you could probably prove in terms of archaeology and stuff or any of that sort of or looking back that he probably didn't come from that line it's irrelevant to the Jews because they didn't really care they did wanted to show that God right the way from Adam through to Jesus had been present and had this cell like this plan of salvation mm. so that's the idea of genealogies it's good to know that you're going to be going back to theological college uh, to make sure you're fit for Anglican well, orders. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm joking. <laughs> so does that relate then to this, this whole thing about how long people live for? Is that a similar kind of thing? Did they actually live that long? It depends who you ask. I don't think so, personally. Did you care about that either? No, it was... It was, again, the continuity it, thing. The continuity and the fact that when they talk about hundreds of years, they're talking the mythological narrative. So the start, that, that Genesis 1 to 11 was written as a constructive mythological narrative to explain Israel's history after the, ex the exile in Babylon. 987 years, is that the oldest one? Something like Something that. Something like that. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine living that can long? Can you imagine <laughs> that, yeah. There's <laughs> a lot of Bible reading, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, exactly. yeah. But it's to show a history and things like that. It's just to separate off this, like, primeval history, they call it. And then Abraham and all of that turns up, and that's when literal history as they as we don't understand it happened yeah there you go that's an important one yeah. so where 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 in genesis does it change genesis 12 around 12 about 12 there you go 
Okay, so Exodus came up then uh, in our reading, and lots of questions about genocide, partly because it's hints to that in future bits of the Bible we'll get to. Uh, Laura seems mm. to know something about genocide. Um, <laughs> that sounds terrible. Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> that came out wrong. Um, <laughs> Everyone's wow. looking a little scared all of a sudden. Um, can, um, you, can you kind of speak to that a little bit? Yeah. What's going well, on there? I can try. A genocidal God. Okay. Uh, so, by the way, I think we probably want to preface everything we say by saying that, um, you know, there's lots of other people who've read a lot more, well, I'll speak for myself, um, who've read a lot more than me and thought about this a lot more, who we can uh, put links to um, alongside this uh, podcast as well. So just a, a little moment of making sure, um, yeah, uh, we tell you that you can find out a bit more from elsewhere as well, because I'm sure many people have said some helpful things about genocide. But um, how do I find it um, helpful when I read those bits uh, where God is seems to be saying that um, Israelites, his people, are going to be taking land, this promised land, they're told that it will be theirs, um, it's you know part of the covenant and the, the blessing um, that they're God's people, that they will belong to him and that they will have this land to live in, and that you know as that process happens there will be a wiping out of uh, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, you know, this whole list and catalogue of people. And uh, one of many objections to the Old Testament is, and we hear it again and again, is, hold on, is this ethnic cleansing? This sounds awful. How can God allow this? Um, a lot to say. Uh, probably one thing um, uh, sort of upstream to say um, is that we have to remember, uh, particularly when we get to Joshua, uh, which is one of the conquest texts, that uh, catalogues this moment in Israel's history of taking this land, that uh, the language of conquest texts, um, contemporary ones to when Joshua was written, um, is quite hyperbolic. So you have this sort of language of, you know, uh, we slay the whole lot of them, the whole of the Canaanites were wiped out, and almost like uh, in, uh, I don't know, a sporting match where you'd say, yeah, we totally wiped them, you know, we... we uh, um, what's the phrase you'd say? Dominated! Yeah. Destroyed. <laughs> we destroyed them. You obviously don't mean that you destroyed them. You mean that you beat them and, you know, 3-2 or whatever. Perhaps not even that clearly, but okay, maybe that would be better. Yeah. Um, and so you have some of this language and elsewhere within um, Joshua, there's references to the fact that clearly not the entirety of the Canaanite population are wiped out. Um, we have moments, obviously Rahab um in the Jericho story, um, she's woven into the story of uh, God's grace and uh, welcomed in um, as uh, one of the people of God, essentially, and her family are saved as well. Um, but there's also mention of how they, you know, they don't actually... Uh, kill everything that lives and breathes and if we look into some of the sort of documentation we have about practice of combat at the time a lot of this combat wouldn't have been happening um in sort of i guess like a residential area where there's women and children so this kind of language of all and everyone and all inclusive is is not how maybe we would imagine it that it means that every single canaanite is wiped out and then we that's supported by the fact that later on in joshua we see references to um, the fact that uh, there are still Canaanites alive, 
Um, I also think that one important thing to say in all of this is that it's not that God doesn't like Canaanites. He doesn't like sin. Mm. And God is a God of justice and a God of judgment. And that is actually a beautiful thing because one day, in the, you know, when Jesus returns, the new creation is established, he will be uh, putting right all that was wrong. And, you know, God's judgment is actually a beautiful thing and his justice is a beautiful thing. Uh, sometimes we find that hard to understand, but it's important to remember that uh, it's the Canaanites who were, we can't quite imagine, I don't think, in our 21st century mindset, how hideously awful Canaanite society was. Their practices of kind of prostituting their own children and uh, slaughtering their own children and all sorts of other things um, are you know so they were such a sinful nation and god did not want his people israel to be corrupted by this nation so it's not that god doesn't like canaanites it's that he doesn't like sin and he wants his people to be established as a people who reflect him and his values compassion love uh, care within the family and therein there's theological importance to the text as well where it's talking about wiping away everything and you destroy everything the the theology is you have none of this gets taken up with you, yeah. And that's the that's the point. Before the point is to you know record Enlightenment style history. It's to um, to make this point of otherness, and you to have no part with all yeah. of that stuff. Absolutely, which is why the stuff you guys helped us think through in this first series is so important because it's how we approach these texts that will help us make sense of them and actually to understand yes it's hyperbole yes actually there's a reason why they were telling that story it wasn't just a history account it was actually part polemic part kind of appeal i think it's something to really remember isn't it because there is just to complicate it a little bit more there is possibly you know there is a moment where it seems that god is cross that if israel have not done their job properly yeah. and have not wiped out all of the canaanite uh, all of the Canaanites and that there you know there, there seems to be this kind of just as I guess Owen was mentioning then this idea that actually um, God is so holy and his people are to reflect him that um, actually it's all got to it's got to go you know there is no room for for what is uh, is is not good um, in God's land um, and that's tricky the worst worst part of the um, Yobble Day readings for me so far, the most disturbing one was um, after the golden calf in Exodus, where Moses gets the yeah. some of the Levites together to go and wield their swords and you know hack down a proportion of the Israelite population. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I remember thinking that going, okay, I need to ask Johnny about that, and I forgot. So on that note, what's your answer? I'm going to go and get carrots up. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah, you have a daughter asleep. Edit this bit out. Well, that means you get out of the menstruation conversation. Well done. Yeah, nice try. All right. I have nothing to say on that period. Oh yeah. dear, dear. Oh dear. It's almost like you'd planned that joke, isn't it? Okay. Um, yeah, thanks, Owen. That's teed me up really nicely for the last question, which I think, Laura, you might have to deal oh, with. Right, okay. um, so yesterday we were in Leviticus 12, if yeah. you're on track with the Yobble reading. Yeah where there's this whole thing around um, women and their periods. And, yeah. and I know actually it really got you thinking. <laughs> yeah. um, and actually it got Johnny thinking. So um, what, yeah. how do we make sense of that? Like what's going on yeah. there? 
So I, th I think that um, that that whole chunk of Leviticus, and we're gonna as we journey through the rest of Leviticus, gonna be having several moments like this. You know, these regulations about infectious skin diseases and mildew and all of this kind of stuff is just very unusual for us to be reading, and um, we have lots of questions about it. Um, I was actually eating my breakfast yesterday morning. I was having a bowl of cereal as I was reading through all of these regulations about infectious skin diseases and like yellow hairs coming out. And I was like, oh, note to self, don't eat cereal as you read Leviticus uh, at any point. But anyway, there is this moment, as Rich said, um, in Leviticus 12, where it talks about um, uh, purification um, after childbirth. And um, specifically, and this is the bit that kind of made me a bit, uh, troubled um, was when it says that if you give birth to I'm just flicking through to find it um, if you give birth to uh, a son then essentially you are kind of classified as unclean for half the time that you are if you give birth to a daughter and it sounds sort of um, discriminating it sounds sexist you know all these alarm bells are ringing in our heads of oh no um, the bible's sexist and what is this saying about women and about um, female babies and etc but actually I think we need to um, kind of think a bit more um, around the whole clean and unclean categories now we've already said that God's people uh, because they were his people reflecting him they uh, there was a call for them to be holy it's the same for us today and um, the New Testament talks about this uh, that we uh, in worshipping and knowing and relating to a holy God in proximity to him we are also to be holy so uh, part of Israel's way of understanding this was that there were these categories of clean and unclean and that kind of um comes in with some of the uh, rituals of uh, something like a skin infection can make you ritually unclean. Now that is different to being a moral kind of uncleanness, you know, don't murder, that's a um, obviously a moral statement. Um, but all of this ritual uh, uncleanliness with this kind of mildew and skin infections we read yesterday is, isn't God stating that person has done anything wrong, but um, is, is this... Uh, symbolic reminder of the people of God as uh, to be holy and to be clean and to be like God. So they had these symbolic ways acting out of differentiating between that which was clean and that which was unclean. That's where you have the food laws that we just read about and all of this stuff. So I've said all of that <laughs> to lead the way to then talking about um, this purification after childbirth, where um, the Hebrew thought is that, um, hello Karis, Karis is just walking. Here is my child. Um, <laughs> we know we've gone on too long when the lunchtime nap is over. Yeah, and Karis is here. Um, so um, uh, Hebrew thought was that life was in the blood. You know, that's a pointer, a reminder towards Jesus Christ, where it's his blood shed for us on the cross, which is life for all who would follow him. Uh, so life being in the blood. So any time where something which has life in it is, in, is infused with life is wasted, um, like uh, blood in menstruating. Um, there's also reference um, to um, an emission of semen from a man. He has to go through the same um, ritual process of uncleanliness and cleanliness and all of these things where there is uh, life supposed to be in something but then wasted has to be seen as separate from God whose, uh, whose life um, is present and with Israel. So that's why you have all of these, and we'll read some more of them, uh, 
purification rules and rituals around uh, women and their menstruation. Not because it is um, it is a sign to be unclean is not saying that you are uh, in these instances wrong or separate or not a, you know not allowed to be uh, part of the life of God, but that actually it's this moment of saying we acknowledge uh, that. Um, that God is is holy and clean, and uh, we are um, we are symbolically reminding ourselves of that. So, uh, when uh, a woman gives birth to um, a girl baby who may also, um, in the first few days of her life, um, have um, uh, menstruation as well. Um, the mother is going through a process of purification on behalf of her daughter as well as for herself. Um, A a reminder um, uh, as well that she is, as a woman, um, the uh, giver of life and has that unique role. In a sense, when we look through all of these purification laws and rituals, the ones that have more um, about them kind of a this indication that they're more precious so the more laws and the more rituals around something the more precious it is um I mean there's obviously stuff there about um uh you know god and idol worship etc um so we can say that here actually and this is a little kind of shout out to um how wonderful uh, god thinks women are uh, that there's a lot of laws around uh, the purification um of women after childbirth in menstruation etc which is which is uh, because they're important as the bringers of life, um, the ones who actually are the only ones who can bring forth children. Um, that is a, a woman's um, uh, uh, privilege and honour. Um, and in that sense, she reflects God as creator. Um, so that's why there are these uh, symbolic um, uh, purification rituals. But the Bible itself is aware that these are for a limited time only. And that's important to say um, because um, there's a, an awareness in scripture that these serve as a time um, in the history of the people of God. And then comes Jesus um, and uh, it changes. And the moment we're in now is not the same as the moment then. And we've talked about this in some of the It Is Written teaching series. Um, but now we um, have Christ. He is the, the perfect sacrifice for all. Um, he is our purifier. Uh, he is the one who makes us clean. Uh, we come through, um, we come to him. And in that sense, the purity of God comes to us through Christ and through his Holy Spirit. Uh, we don't need to go through a ritual process because in the grace of God, he has come to us um, uh, in Christ and through his spirit. What's that um, David Lomas quote? It's on some of these rules. What do you think? It's not timeless wisdom. It's wisdom for a time. Yes. But boom. It's not timeless wisdom. It's wisdom for a time. Yes. For a time such as this. Yes. Cake. Can can I just say, for those of you listening, okay, Laura Gallagher has just given you a spontaneous sermon (laughs) (laughs) on on holiness, cleanliness, Leviticus. She literally all she has in menstruation, (laughs) all she has in front of her is her Bible. Well, I did speak. I did speak to a friend yesterday (laughs) who has a PhD in Old Testament and women. Okay. Well, nonetheless, she just still remembered that. (laughs) And actually, just for the record, Johnny has nothing in front of him other than the computer we're recording all this on. (laughs) So these guys have spoken totally unprepared, out of 
I shouldn't have said that. They've prepared, but they have no notes in front of them. Um, we've run out of time, but we are uh, this coming Sunday starting a new series. The second series is called God's Unfolding Story. We're going to look at the drama of Scripture in six parts, the overarching story. We just want to remind you that there's a Yobble resource page uh, with all this stuff on there, links to suggested reading and what have you, small group material. Um, thank you for listening. Do keep sending in your questions. And uh, if you've got any more questions about what we've talked about, do find one of us on Sunday or in the office or drop us an email. Um, is this now like time to cue the exit music? Have we got Indeed. exit music? We will have. We will have. <laughs> right, really? Okay. You're probably hearing it now. Is it going to be like shine, Jesus, shine? Or Every day we are balling. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We really need to stop. Okay. Thanks for listening. <laughs>